0: On a Monday morning in August, the United States Justice Department and the FBI may have crossed the proverbial Rubicon. For the first time in American history, agents showed up unannounced at the home of a former president of the United States in a court-authorized search for classified documents that were removed from the White House. It was an extraordinary move by any measure based on a still-sealed affidavit that lays out probable cause for why the documents at Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago contains evidence of a federal crime. What exactly are the potential crimes at issue? And what to make of the furious reaction from leading Republicans in Congress vowing full scale investigations of the Justice Department and the FBI if they, as many expect, take control of the House in November? We'll talk to Mary McCord, a career prosecutor and the former chief of the Justice Department's National Security Division. And then we'll talk to Dana Milbank, columnist for the Washington Post and the author of the new book, The Destructionists, the 25-year Crack-Up of the Republican Party, on this episode of Skullduggery.
1: I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability.
0: Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help
2: me God. So help me God. So help me God. So
1: help me God. So help
2: me
0: God. I'm Michael Isakov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
2: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: And I'm
3: Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United.
0: So we have been on a uh, reduced summer schedule, taking some time off uh, this uh, July and August, but the news gods have not been taking any time off in the uh, couple of weeks since we did our last episode. There's been some many extraordinary developments until last night. The one that we would have been talking about was the turnaround for Biden and the Democrats getting this major climate change bill through the Senate and likely now the House uh, that does pick up Biden's prospects. But um, clearly, the increasing aggressiveness of the Justice Department in investigating Donald Trump and culminating with this raid As it were, on Monday at Mar-a-Lago is a pretty major development, and um, it's good we're going to have Mary McCord here to talk about it. It is,
2: but I think Mike, I think you're underselling the Biden turnaround a little bit. So before we get to that, you know, you had it's it you know it's the climate change, health care, and tax bill, major Democratic priorities that seemed dead only a, a couple of weeks ago have passed. You know they took out Zawahri. Yeah, Laden's forgot about a, that one. Bin yeah. Laden's number two. They they got right. the semiconductor bill passed. They got a massive increase in jobs, 500,000 plus jobs. So uh, I can only think that Ron Klain and other members of the Biden uh, senior White House staff are plotting to figure out how they can get us out of town again, because <laughs> everything seemed to turn around when Skalduggery right. went on vacation.
0: So... <laughs> So a lot of Democrats out there probably want us to take a permanent vacation, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but we will not do so <laughs> here at Skullduggery.
3: Hey, Danny, don't forget, gas prices are down, too. And gas yeah.
2: prices are, are coming down, although inflation, not quite yet. We'll not see so what, what happens. That, And uh, look,
0: uh, yes, certainly this legislation is truly significant, particularly on the climate change part. But calling it the Inflation Reduction Act is, I know... You oh, know, Mike, you're going to get Congress- into the bill naming business now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a bit of a misnomer, I think one has to acknowledge oh, no. that. Yeah. For, no.
2: Well, for cynics like us, but it works. <laughs> yeah. It works. Uh, it's why they always yeah. come up with those euphemistic names uh, for, for their bills. But back to the news yeah. of the moment, this... We're being told on Twitter and by persnickety Justice Department lawyers not to call it a raid. We've always called these searches uh, FBI raids because they don't, you know, they're going to they have a court order to do it. They're going to come in, not guns blazing, but with a lot of agents and a lot of power to uh, look for whatever they want to find. But it is. Unprecedented, as you pointed out in your introduction, to execute a search warrant on the home of a former president who is likely to be the Republican standard bearer for the next presidential election. And so The question is, why would they have done would they have done something like this unless they had a really good reason to do it? Uh, We are in the dark. We really don't know what they've got here other than the likelihood that it involves some some mishandling of classified information.
3: There's another element of what happened that that bears uh, noting, which is that the Department of Justice had two options in terms of getting this material Option one was a subpoena. Option two was a search warrant. Normally, it would have been a subpoena. Normally, you send a subpoena to a, a target and that subpoena produces the documents. That they escalated to a search warrant is pretty extraordinary and is also probably evidence that they didn't trust or, or believe that Trump would in any way, shape or form comply with the subpoena.
2: It's evidence of a crime, right? Probable cause. They would need the probable cause standard to execute a search warrant like that to get it approved by a judge. So they believe that a crime has been committed.
0: I mean, to me, it's it's a little unfortunate that the first really aggressive overt act against Trump has come down this way because we don't get to see the sealed affidavit. So we don't know what is the basis for what they're doing. If they had indicted Trump, we, you know, they would have laid out their evidence and we would all see it. Trump could show us the warrant anytime he wants. Well, he could. To me, though, the, the most revealing thing about this was Trump's own statement about it. And I'll just read a section from it. It was a lengthy statement that he put out. Such an assault could only take place in broken third world countries. Sadly, America has now become one of those countries corrupt at a level not seen before. They even broke into my safe exclamation point. What is the difference between this and Watergate, where operatives broke into the Democrat National Committee? Here, in reverse, Democrats broke into the home of the forty-fifth President of the United States. And to me, what leaps out in that is that's exactly how Trump thinks. The Justice Department is controlled by the Democrats. You know, it's a they are just doing this for partisan reasons. When he was in charge of the executive branch, he viewed the Justice Department as his Justice Department, as his Republican Justice Department. It's the way he views law enforcement in this country, purely through a political ends lens, somewhat forgetting that the people involved in law enforcement have standards, have the law, have precedent, uh, statutes that they have to follow.
2: I would point out another irony, um, which is that if uh, if you all remember his uh, 2016 presidential campaign, it was largely premised on uh, the allegation that Hillary Clinton mishandled uh, classified information. And he led his followers in chants of You know, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. I think he's still doing (laughs) doing that. Meanwhile, now uh, that he is being accused of mishandling classified information, the Justice Department is the equivalent of the the German Gestapo uh, and turning the country into a police state. So he's all of a sudden a civil libertarian.
3: (laughs) Yeah. As is so often the case with Trump, his accusations are actually admissions. (laughs)
2: well said
0: excellent point we've got uh, lots to talk about here a couple of housekeeping matters we are still on a reduced summer schedule uh we'll have another skullduggery pod next week uh and then we'll take the the fates the week uh, (laughs) after that we will be off so expect all hell to break loose that week and um Victoria, you are gonna be with us for the conversation with Mary McCord, but then I understand you've got other business to attend to, so Dan and I will do the Dana Milbank interview. That said, we got Mary waiting for us, so let's get to it. We've now got with us Mary McCord, the former assistant attorney general, acting assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division of the Justice Department. We've had her on before to walk through all the legal issues involving Donald Trump, but the news this week is so extraordinary. We wanted to have her back. So, Mary, welcome back to Skull Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. So, Rather striking news last night that the FBI has raided the home of the former president of the United States and, according to Trump, broke into his safe. What do you make of this?
4: Well, first, I would quarrel with two terms you just used raid and broke into his safe
0: (laughs) i said according to trump
4: (laughs) okay fair enough because this was of course a court authorized search warrant that would have had to have included the safe within the terms of the search warrant or you know uh verbiage within that search warrant which would have made it clear that was authorized to go into a safe as well so you know i think what's You know, the reason this is such big news is it's in a very overt step for the FBI to actually execute a search warrant. And that signals to the whole world that they had probable cause that a judge, a federal judge agreed with probable cause to believe that evidence of a crime would be located in the premises to be searched, which is his home at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, former President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago, at the time that it was searched. Um, So it couldn't be we thought this stuff was there a year ago, but not now. It would have to be Probable cause to believe that evidence of a crime exists in that location at that time. And so, you know, that means that the Department of Justice, probably at the highest levels, because I don't think that, that this would be approved at a low level, probably all the way up to the Attorney General, agreed that this was a step that was not only legally supportable, but also, you know, important to take. And so I think that's partly why we've seen so much kerfuffle about it ever since it happened.
0: Obviously, this involves, as has been reported, the uh, removal of classified documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. What are the potential crimes here? That Because it's not about January 6th, I just wanted to make that point clear. What are the potential crimes here? And What's the precedent for DOJ enforcement of a matter such as this, if there has ever been a matter such as this?
4: So, the, you know, there's a variety of different possible crimes. So I think the two that are probably worth focusing the most on are 18 U.S.C. 2071. And this really applies to any, you know, federal government employee who willfully, right, and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys public records, right? Records that are public records. So it means under that particular statute, it would mean if that was one of the bases for the search warrant, and I don't know yet. I mean, I haven't seen the search warrant. I don't know that anybody has. The reporting that's out there is supposedly based on somebody with knowledge. Um, So that's where we get this notion that this was a search warrant based on something having to do with taking these classified documents. But until some of us get to lay eyes on it, we don't know that for sure. But assuming that that's the case, we also don't know if this was one of the statutes cited in the search warrant, because typically you would, an, an agent applying for a search warrant would cite the statute that he believes has been is the crime that may have been committed and that the evidence of this crime would be at this location right so 2071 i think is important to keep in mind would require willfulness right and concealing so if a per- that would mean that if that's the crime that is the predicate for that search warrant the probable cause would establish willfulness right and not just by accident and i think that certainly when we learned i don't know gosh However, many months ago, maybe almost a year ago, I can't even recall anymore, that boxes of documents had been taken to Mar-a-Lago that might include presidential records. I think there was some discussion about whether that was just accidental in the course of, you know, packing up frantically before vacating the White House. And so, again, that's why I think it's important to point out the willfulness that would be required. Can can I just
2: stop you there for one second? Given that willfulness standard, And I know we're in the realm of speculation here, so we'll just stipulate to that. But what does that tell you about potential crimes that they suspect could have, you know, were were committed beyond just having those documents there? Does that suggest possibly that they uh, had information that there was some kind of obstruction going on, that perhaps copies of the documents that were turned over were made. I mean, give us a sense of what you think would provoke the Justice Department to take such an extraordinary step as to execute a search warrant on a former president who might be running again for president.
4: So, I I mean, I I think one of the things that is significant here to me is the fact that after it was revealed, however many months ago, that, you know, documents had been taken, presidential records had been taken in Mar-a-Lago, 15 boxes were returned, right? This is a result of consultations uh, with the archivist, etc. So the fact that they're now during the search warrant makes me, that's how, how I think you could potentially get to willfulness, right? Because even if that was all an accident, it's been called to the president's attention. It's been called to the president's lawyer's attention. There was an actual collaborative, I guess, effort to round up the documents, the presidential records that have been mistakenly taken and they return them. So the, so the fact that they still, that the Justice Department apparently there's has probable cause to believe there's other documents, including classified documents there, whether they're the same or different, I don't know. But this idea that, oh, it was a mistake, he doesn't really have that anymore. So I think that's significant because it shows, okay, you had your chance, you argue a mistake. You, the department obviously has probable cause if the reporting is correct to believe you still have documents, maybe some of the same, like you say, maybe copies. And so the question is why, right? Are you trying to conceal? What are you trying to do?
3: Okay, so let me, let me ask a question. The New York Times is reporting that in June, multiple officials from the Department of Justice visited Mar-a-Lago to kind of check the documents and see where some of these documents were being stored, including the DOJ Chief of Counterintelligence and Export Control. What does it tell you that someone at that rank and in that position went to Mar-a-Lago?
4: Well, I know Jay Bratt. I've worked with Jay for decades, actually. We were both at the same U.S. Attorney's Office together for many years and then uh, brought him over to a position in uh, the National Security Division when I was the Acting Assistant Attorney General. So uh, I do think it's it's significant i mean that's the litigating division within department of justice that investigates mishandling of classified information i think it's it's interesting reporting because i it's it's curious to me how that developed you know how what that included in terms of looking at documents and then how that fed into this warrant if at all and right now i just don't feel like i have nearly enough information to speculate about that but i I, that does lead me to and i want to make sure to mention this too that leads me to the fact that there's another potential crime here that has to do with classified information and the fact that we have national security division lawyers such as Jay brett the head of counterintelligence and export control does mean that we're talking about national security implications not simply presidential records that aren't classified. And I know that's already been reported. It's about classified documents, but I just wanna you know, be clear that you know it's a violation to take even non-classified information violates that 2071. The other, another potential crime is actually under the Espionage Act, which is 18 U.S.C. 793. And that actually has provisions that apply to essentially the mishandling through gross negligence, permitting documents to be removed from their property place or to be lost stolen or destroyed and there's also conspiracy provisions within that 18 USC 793 so you know that again gross negligence would be a different standard standard of intent than the willfulness for 2071. But certainly, gross negligence could be proved by willfulness because that would be even beyond gross negligence. And so when so,
3: yeah. when you when you were the head of the um, the national security division, what would it have taken? What sort of evidence would you have wanted to see before you would have signed off on a search warrant of a potential suspect in DIT? What would it have taken to convince you that you ought to do that?
4: So always for a search warrant, you need probable cause that evidence of a crime will be found at the at the location sought to be searched. Right. So. So I think what you're really asking is not, you know, what would I have taken in terms of probable cause, but what prudential concerns would go into it, particularly in a sensitive case like this where we're talking about a former president. And there's also prudential concerns about danger to national security. And is this the right tactic and uh, an overt search warrant, right? Or is there something some other way of mitigating danger to the United States that doesn't involve this kind of overt investigative technique? I would also be thinking down the line. Am I gonna be able to make a case in court because is the national defense information so sensitive that the equity holder, the national security agency whose information it is, is never gonna let me put it in court, is never gonna say to me, it's okay, prosecutor, to prove up that this is national defense information the very nature of which means it would cause substantial damage to U.S. national security if it were disclosed, you know, admitting that is actually admitting to things that sometimes our national security agencies don't want to admit to. So there's all kinds of prudential things you'd be looking at. In terms of a former president, that's what's unprecedented here to kind of go back to one of the initial questions. And so, you know, it would be more than just do you have probable cause. It would be where are we going from here? If we find the things we think we're gonna find, are we gonna be seeking a, you know, an indictment from this grand jury? And what are the different things to weigh? Is that you know, because it's unprecedented, is this in line with other precedents, even though they're not the same, it's not about a former president, but so that would, to me, that would depend on how significant are the documents, right? How sensitive is the national security information? Are we worried that some of this information would actually be shared outside of Mar-a-Lago, potentially with foreign adversaries? I'd be really concerned about that.
2: And it is the case, by the way, that representatives of foreign governments come to Mar-a-Lago all the time.
4: That is the case. And it's also the case that that the president has said things to foreign adversaries, you know, during his term that caused the intelligence agencies and national security agencies to, you know, become quite alarmed and concerned and startled. But one complication here is that the president, when president, not now, but when president has the authority to declassify things, he he doesn't have that authority anymore.
2: By the way, just very quickly, I know Mike's got a question, but on that point, is it just a kind of a waving of the wand or does the president, is there an elaborate process for a president to declassify information?
4: So there are processes, but it can happen Relatively quickly, and let me give you examples. Sometimes, when journalists such as yourselves get some classified information through some source, sometimes that will come to the attention. Sometimes the journalist themselves calls the government and says, "Hey, you know, this is an important story we want to break, but we, we're we're doing a little check with you to see how dangerous will be." And sometimes, a a high level intelligence official will say to the journalist, "You know, that this is true information." it's national security information. It's highly classified. We're asking you not to publish it. And that that person is in that moment making decision to reveal to that journalist that, you know, yes, this is legitimate information. Please don't publish it because of the national security implications. And that can that can be done because if that person, if that person is an original classifying authority. So in other words, if that person has the equity and by equity I see, say is his agency or her agency is the is the is the one who sort of owns that national security information.
0: So, Mary, I asked you before about Justice Department precedents for cases such as this. Now, the one that leaps to mind is Sandy Berger, who was the Bill Clinton's national security advisor, And then after he leaves office, he goes into the National Archives while he's preparing for his testimony before the 9-11 Commission. And (laughs) outright helps himself to classified documents, stuffs it in his socks and his pants and gets caught red-handed. He gets prosecuted. He doesn't get prison time. He gets fined um, and community service gives up his law license. And there are some other cases of just outright theft by people who just take loads, bucket loads of old civil war documents from the archives and try to use them for financial purposes. But, you know, they're, those are cases that clearly meet the willfulness standard that you're talking about to conceal. But, you know, it's hard for me to see a set of circumstances involving Trump that meets that kind of standard here.
4: Well, again, we're going to go way into the realm of speculation, as I've already right. been um, said. But, you know, this is why I pointed out the, the whole background history here, right, of being put on notice that there were documents missing from the archives, right? His own attorneys and his own consultants packaging up 15 boxes in coordination with the archivist about the missing records and sending them back. And at that time, I think, you know, certainly there was, I'm sure his own attorneys uh, advised him of what the laws are and it was widely reported, many, many lawyers and others talking about what the laws are that prohibit the taking of presidential records and certainly prohibit the mishandling of classified information. So I can tell a tale here that wouldn't sound that much different than stuffing things into your pockets, because if it came to your house inadvertently by mistake, you're put on notice that you may have classified information that needs to be returned. And then you make some decisions about what to keep and not return and what to return. I don't know that that's so much different than uh, going into the archives and walking out without it. You you have now taken what you've been told is not yours to take. I don't know if that's what happened here, right? I also don't know how, how close Trump himself would have been to the discussions about what to package up and what to not. It's also possible, wild speculation, it's also possible he pulled things aside before he turned things over to others to pack up. You know, I just don't know. Do you think
0: there's any possibility that this was done to send Trump a message that we're serious and by people who are primarily interested in the January 6th issues?
4: I don't really think that I, it's just, you know, knowing the attorney general Merrick Garland, knowing his deputy attorney general Lisa Monaco, knowing Jay Pratt, I mean, they don't really use criminal tools to send messages Messages. Um, I mean, a criminal tool always does send a message. Prosecutors but,
0: often do, but, yeah. You know.
4: Yes, but <laughs> not, I mean, if, if what you're suggesting is pretext, I don't buy into the pretext theory. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly when you have a search warrant that allows access to various spaces, that means you can, if you then find while you were looking for evidence of the crime that you based your search warrant on, if you find other evidence of crime in plain view in that place that you're authorized to be in, you can, you can seize that evidence. And so certainly it's possible that investigators, the FBI, will have found things that are evidence of other crimes besides those that we've just been discussing. But I find it hard to believe the Department of Justice would have used this as a pretext to get in there to search for other things. I know that's not exactly what your question was. I I do think, and I think the timing, I just also just don't think this attorney... General would do it to sort of send a message, look, as we come into you making decisions, for example, about whether you're going to run, no, we're serious. I think he knows the department is serious. Look at the people they've been you know, talking to. Look at the people they've been subpoenaing. Look at other overt actions that are taking place in other investigations. So, But I could be wrong.
2: Mary, when and how do you think we'll learn about what's going on here and why the Justice Department did this?
0: And what's in that affidavit? When can we see the affidavit?
4: Yeah, so it'll be a while. I mean, I guess, you know, one of the next things possibly could be whether any charges grow out of this or whether we see other overt steps coming out of this.
2: Could the affidavit in support of the search warrant be unsealed before charges are brought or does that never happen?
0: Or if if Trump challenges it.
4: Yeah so there are circumstances when it when it potentially could you know be made public um before charges um and particularly now since there's nothing secret about it but there, you know, and and there could be challenges. Although, like you say, the challenge at this point, the search has happened. It's not as though he's able to get in, in front of the chief judge before, you know, before the search happens and try to prevent it from happening. That sometimes happens, but that isn't taking place here. So eventually we will see what's in that, affidavit.
3: So one of the consequences of the raid has been a very significant uptick. Uh, This is asking you, Mary, to put on your other hat, a pretty significant uptick in, in kind of violent and hostile rhetoric about Trump and about protecting him. Is this a triggering point? Is this a, a turning point in kind of the calls to action and violence that many of the Trump supporters have been looking for?
4: So, you know, I haven't mostly because I've been in back to back meetings all day, have not really seen what the latest is um, uh, sort of in the extremist ecosystem online. There's no doubt that they'll be called, you know, those all will be all kinds of outrageous statements will be being made. I'm not going to say this is a, I mean, necessarily a pivotal moment. I think there've been so many revelations that, you know, Trump has used to play himself as the victim and, you know, the victims of a hoax and a witch hunt, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, this is just more of the same. So you know i i mean he's got his folks who are willing to take up arms for him and i think they're probably the same folks i don't know that more would become emboldened by this but that's also You know, that's also speculation. It's not not a good step when it comes to like how it's going to, you know, and partly that's why I think he tried to get out and say what he did last night, right? He wanted to get out ahead of anything else and use words like raid and broke into and how horrible this was so that he could, you know, drum up the support from his extremist supporters and I guess all of his supporters.
0: Mary, I want to thank you again for uh, joining us. You are our go-to guide on what happens inside the Justice Department. So I have a reason to believe or probable cause to believe we'll want to have you back. But thanks a lot. Take care. We've now got with us Dana Milbank, columnist for The Washington Post and author of the new book, The Destructionists, The 25-Year Crack-Up of the Republican Party. Dana, welcome to Skullduggery.
1: Michael, it is a great thrill and an honor.
0: <laughs> well, uh, that sounds like hyperbole to me, but you know, you're the pro.
1: <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. Twenty five years ago, I was a kid reporter at the New Republic, and I had a little scoop in the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal, and I let it off by saying. I am no Michael Isakoff, but I do think I have a
4: <laughs> right. <speaker.
0: laughs> right. Well, uh, I'm no Dana Milbank. So, you know, uh, just so we're even on that score. Look, a lot to talk about in your book, but uh, we got to start out with this um, amazing news last night from uh, Mar-a-Lago. The Justice Department, uh, the FBI raids his home, breaks into his safe. And I was watching Fox News last night, which I'm prone to do because I want to know how these things sort of play in Trump land and just unanimous, like excoriating of the uh, FBI and the Justice Department vows to launch investigations left and right. Kevin McCarthy said this has reached an intolerable state of weaponized politicization. Attorney General Garland, preserve your documents and clear your calendar. What do you make of this response from the people you're writing about in your book?
1: I I think it's very ominous. I'm uh, more concerned than I've been uh, at any time uh, of the Trump era. I mean, that's just a small smattering. People are talking about tyranny. There's talk of uh, civil war. You know, if you go down the rabbit hole of pro-Trump social media, uh, there really is now talk of bloodshed and and when does the shooting start? It actually reminds me uh, of the time before the Oklahoma City bombing, where you had uh, people talking about, members of Congress talking about black helicopters, the government is attacking us. Remember, Gordon Liddy talked about uh, going for headshots to take out the uh, ATF agents. We're hearing very, very similar rhetoric now. And you know where that leads. And uh, instead of uh, Republican leadership, which knows better, calming things down and saying, you know, this is is not the time to be engaging in violent rhetoric, they're pouring fuel on the fire. So I'm very concerned, you know, given the back drop of uh, growing domestic terrorism by right-wing extremists, that this is going to give somebody or somebodies an excuse to take matters into their own hands and uh, fight back in a very ugly way.
2: It's an interesting kind of case study that goes to some of the main themes in your book. And what is it about Our politics and the way they've changed over the last 25 years that leads to people like Kevin McCarthy and other senior members of the Republican Party to respond to a law enforcement action like this one, the way that they have.
1: Well, you know, a couple of things uh, have changed. I mean, there's there's no boundaries uh, to the rhetoric now there uh, i think that was sort of an innovation of the gingrich era which of course has gone through uh, many iterations uh, for the worse since then but the people on the other side of the aisle are no longer your opponents they are the enemy and it, it's no longer do we take the opposition's patriotism for granted. That was always assumed. They want they are, they may disagree with us, but they want what's in the best interest of the country. And you saw that in the Trump era, where basically anybody who disagreed with him uh, was labeled a traitor. And I think we're seeing that now uh, in this angry, violent rhetoric. We're against, the not just against this raid, we're against the FBI and need to defund and dismantle them. We're a banana republic. We're in the uh, uh, third world. This is uh, Marxist tyranny. And of course, Dana, that all goes to sort of two main
2: themes in your book, one which you sum up by saying that everything that we've seen in the Trump era, those scenes of sedition uh, had been planted earlier, a quarter of a century earlier, in the same spot on the west front of the Capitol where the January 6th attacks occurred. But also, so much of this is laid at the feet of Newt Gingrich, who you say it sort of started with, uh, that in a sense he was the innovator of this idea that, you know, Democrats and Republicans are no longer just political rivals uh, to debate the issues and try to uh, persuade each other. But now Democrats have become the mortal enemy
1: who need to be destroyed. So take us back 25 years and tell us
2: where this story begins.
1: And we can even go back a little further. In 1990, Newt Gingrich writes this uh, famous memo, uh, How to Speak Like Newt, which was sent to all Republican uh, <laughs> candidates and, and, and lawmakers. And it says you should be labeling Democrats with these words corrupt, cheat, betray, uh, lie, abuse of power. Coincidentally, just the words we're hearing right now from uh, Fox News and Republican leadership. You know, this was at the time shocking. Uh, and revolutionary. Now, of course, this is uh, commonplace now, but that was a singular Gingrich uh, innovation. Uh, He used it, that kind of a campaign to bring down uh, Jim Wright, the Speaker of the House, this campaign of disgusting innuendo against his successor, uh, Tom Foley, drove Bob Michael, his own Republican leader, uh, into retirement from the House. Uh, Michael warned about Gingrich's pyrotechnics. Uh, You know, he, he was... Uh, A genial guy, the nicest guy you'd ever want to find, successful, ushered Reagan's agenda through the House, but realized your opponents are not your enemy. The enemy is the people that uh, Bob Michael was fighting in in World War II. And I think that was the difference. You had Gingrich, who got out of service uh, in Vietnam, had decided that this was war by other means. And uh, famously, he's quoted as saying one of the big problems in the Republican Party is we don't teach you to be nasty enough. Well, they've they've learned that lesson uh, in a very big way.
0: Yeah. Of course, the purpose of of politics is to win elections. What would you say to those who say as distasteful as Gingrich's tactics were? He did, you know, bring the Republicans back into power in the House. They took control in 1994 for the first time since one since, Mm -hmm. you know, 1952. Right. So. You know, uh, by the calculus by which we measure politicians, what Gingrich did worked
1: yes if, if that's the calculus i would say that's the wrong calculus because we look at uh, basically they destroyed the democracy to uh benefit the party uh so if you look at uh, you know the the annual gallup trust and confidence in american institutions you can see a really sharp decline over that uh quarter century 30 years in every part of american government the presidency the courts Uh, the Congress, the media. He fostered a general distrust and uh, antipathy towards government, which alienated some voters, drove them out of the political system. Uh, It's a a separate matter, but Republicans have also been working over the years on voter suppression, maximizing turnout of their base, suppressing turnout of the other side. Uh, So I I think it had come uh, at an enormous cost. And of course, you, you've seen that, you know, I say they've been pulling at the threads of the rule of law and at democracy for many years. So we've gotten to this point now. Yes. You know, Trump was a, Trump's uh, able to win by maximizing the vote of this uh, uh, receding power in America. The 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 w- white non-college educated male that's sustaining him uh, in power now. I don't see it sustaining Republicans in the long term.
0: So just to follow up on that, and you say, you know, winning elections should not be the only calculus by which we, you know, judge uh, political actors. I just wonder what you make then of the recent reports about the DCCC funding these MAGA election deniers in house races, because they think they'll be easier to beat, getting rid of... You know, one of the few, one of the 10 House Republicans who actually voted to impeach Donald Trump. If your goal is to preserve democracy, presumably you at least we need a responsible Republican Mm -hmm. Party. Aren't the Democrats sort of, you know, doing everything they can to stop that from happening?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a stupid a policy to the extent to which it's a policy. I'm not so sure it's a well thought out one or even if it's thought out at all. But uh, yes, it, it, look, if you're a Democratic candidate, naturally you want to run against the most extreme, absurd person the other side can put up. I understand that. And if that happens by accident, well, it happens. But it's an entirely different matter to elevate that extremist in the hopes that you take him out, because there is always the chance that you don't take him out. You know, imagine, think about the the lineup of election deniers now uh, in Arizona uh, for the Senate, for governor, for attorney general, and the craziest of all for secretary of state actually overseeing elections, you know, an oath keeper and a QAnon guy. I'm not saying the Democrats were boosting all of these guys, but, uh, you know, sure, you want to be able to run against nuts like this, but the stakes are much worse for the country if the nuts get through. So I, I, I do not think that's a, a smart policy the Democrats at all.
2: Dana, let's uh, dig a, a little bit deeper into the reasons for this transformation of Republicans into destructionists. Because a lot of people will point to polarization in our politics as as, you know, maybe the the driving force here. But but that's not what you you see. That there are these kind of structural factors, polarization, fragmentation of the media, social media, all of these things that kind of are self-reinforcing, but you see other factors, and primarily uh, the one that you see is race. Mm -hmm. Explain that.
1: Yes, I I mean, I I, I agree that polarization is a thing that is existing. Both parties have uh, gone more towards the polls, but, you know, you can talk to the political scientists that can document that it, it is really disproportionate, that, that uh, one side has gone to a, a polar extreme and the other has moved a little bit to the left, but I don't think we wanna talk um, political science here. See, so, yeah, I mean, there, there there are various ways in which I've said that Republicans have basically stopped being good faith participants in the democratic process. You know. The primary one is race. As we were discussing a moment ago, look at the autopsy Republicans did after 2012. They said we need to appeal to black voters, Latino, Asian Americans, gay voters. And they took that advice and then went in precisely the opposite direction. And, uh, you know, House Republicans, led by Steve King, uh, defeated comprehensive immigration reform, even though it had, you know, bipartisan, overwhelming bipartisan uh, support in the Senate. And then Trump comes along and his innovation, if you can call it that, is there is enough angst out there among white voters, particularly non-college educated, who are going to become a minority in this country in the year 2045, will be a white minority country. They are anxious and they are angry about being replaced to get at the great replacement theory. You can capitalize on that anger and bring them out in huge number, Uh, and Trump did. You know, forty percent of the people who voted for him were white evangelical Christians. They're only fifteen percent of the population, but they are twenty-five percent of the electorate. So, in in race, uh, in that way, and perhaps we can talk about these other things, but also just sort of this grinding uh, assault on the truth, uh, expertise, and the media also figures into it. The Republican efforts to basically throw sand in the gears of government to bring about this constant era of uh, shutdowns and debt limit defaults and and just a general uh, halt to government uh, functioning. And also this footsie with the anti-government militia type patriot movements, which you saw in the 90s. You saw it again during uh, the Tea Party era. And unfortunately, we're seeing it in perhaps the biggest way of all uh, right now, but they constantly being let further and further into the Republican tent, and now it seems as if they've taken over.
0: So, Dana, in your book, you do argue that, you know, Trump's election can primarily be described as a result of this racial resentment and, you know, white resistance. And basically, you know, it is about race, not the economic dislocations that people in, you know, many Midwestern states were experiencing. But let me ask you this. Look, in 2012, the voters in Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania voted for the reelection of a black man, Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Four years later, they all voted for Donald Trump. Narrow margins, but you know Trump mm-hmm. got those electoral votes. Did the voters in those states become more race, racist in the four years between Obama and Trump?
1: no and i don't i don't i think the the notion to the extent to which they've been the same voters i think has been overplayed i think there are relatively few of that it's more about turnout uh, and who's coming out uh on each side but no america is not more racist than it was before indeed it's probably a lot less racist than it was at at times in our history americans are not more violent and not more conspiracy-minded than they were before what's happened is particularly trump but those leading up to him said uh validated it said it's okay to express these feelings so i think you're having a lot more sound and fury of the racism, of the violent rhetoric, of the conspiracy theories. They've been brought from the fringes into the mainstream. So why do why did those Midwestern battleground uh, states uh, shift? A lot of it was a backlash to the existing administration, which Republican leaders, Trump uh, principally among them, channeled into racial thoughts. Uh, It was a backlash against a woman being at the top of the presidential ticket, which Trump primarily translated into uh, misogynistic thoughts. So you had more people like that turning out at the polls. It's not like people changed their minds. It's just you had more of those kind of voters turning out in larger numbers. So, Dana,
2: one of the things that you do really brilliantly in, in, in this book um, is kind of lay out the antecedents uh, to the destructionists or to Trumpism, you know, because we sometimes think of Trump as a kind of a singular and unique figure, which right. in many ways he is. But he is also, I think, in your view, a symptom of, of the disease. So give us some of those milestones, those key events along the road to uh, destructionism. And uh, let's start with one that Isakoff and I covered uh, many years ago, which involved an obscure backbench congressman named Dan Burton and a melon.
1: <laughs> yes, the Vince Foster murder. Um, <laughs> I, I, I believe I actually uh, quoted from uh, uh, Michael in, in Newsweek, uh, or you did a review, perhaps for the post of uh, Chris. But actually, Reddy's-
0: that appeared in Slate. Um, That was in Slate. That's right.
1: right. So I think this was sort of the beginning of conspiracy theories going mainstream. Of course, conspiracy theories have always been with us. I mean, just think about the uh, JFK assassination. What you had here with Vince Foster, just sort of a small recap, longtime friend of uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, deputy uh, White House counsel from Arkansas. He's very depressed. He's being beaten up by the Wall Street Journal editorial page over all kinds of things. He uh, asks uh, his sister, I believe, for names of psychiatrists. He gets an antidepressant. He writes a suicide note. He goes and kills himself in a a park uh, in Virginia. Four or five investigations, various arms of the government confirm that that is indeed uh, what happened. But then you had uh, Dan Burton, who was the uh, Newt made the top uh, house investigator, essentially determined to prove that this was murder and quite possibly Hillary Clinton uh, was involved in this. And to prove it, uh, he went into uh, his backyard and he shot a melon. Now, there's some disagreement. Was it a cantaloupe? <laughs> what is it, a Mortar Maybe it was a pumpkin. Did there he was hit some the melon? It was some kind of fruit. Did he hit the target? I, I believe he hit it and he said this proved that Vince Foster could not have been killed in fort marcy park where his body was found because somebody would have heard the gunshot so if you follow the you know this down the rabbit hole basically it became he was killed somewhere else he was rolled up in a carpet he was dragged 800 feet up this hill and somehow they kept his head up so his body did not lose any blood And then they dumped him there and it just got crazier and crazier. The carpet threads were supposed to connect it to Hillary Clinton. He was murdered in in an apartment that uh, Hillary Clinton was somehow associated with. And it wasn't just the fringes now. It was Rush Limbaugh promoting this on air. And Newt Gingrich was saying, you know, I'm just not convinced that he killed himself, (laughs) you know, in a way that Trump would say, I mean, I'm just asking questions. Uh, So here you had the man second in the line to the presidency backing this conspiracy theory that was just bonkers. And of course, it went on and on with Ron Brown and Filegate and all that. So I think that that's really the beginning of conspiracy theories becoming sort of a political weapon and entering the mainstream.
2: It is worth pointing out, by the way, and Isakoff did an excellent podcast series on this, that some 25 years later, uh, Donald Trump would raise questions about Joe Scarborough, perhaps, you know, being involved. Not perhaps.
0: In the... he, he accused him of murdering <laughs> yeah. a, a uh, staffer in his office. I mean, it was complete nonsense. There was nothing to support it.
1: But Trump went on and on yes. about it for a full week or two. He did, uh, And he brought up Vince Foster all over again and said yeah. it still hadn't been satisfied. And then, of <laughs> course, there was the tragic uh, episode of Seth Rich and how that was hyped uh, right. on Fox News and and wound up uh, costing them. But it. Just... I do
0: have to say, though, I, I think you are a little unfair to Brett Kavanaugh in this section <laughs> because as I I mean, having covered this, it was actually Kavanaugh who wrote the report, the star report that debunked the Vince Foster conspiracy theory. So in many ways, he's the Brad Raffensperger of this story. I mean, um, he, you know, I, I get you could say, well, why did he bother to investigate it at all? And, you know, one point I made in that slate piece is, you know, there was this nonsense book by uh Trump's, you know, good friend, Chris Ruddy. I think Mm -hmm. they became good friends much later, which, you know, sort of stoked the conspiracy theory. And it hadn't sort of died out of American politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, the New York Times book review gave that book a credible review saying it was uh, raising serious questions that needed to be answered. The book had a blurb from the former director of the FBI. So it was... You know the the nonsense that Chris Ruddy was spreading was in the political discourse, and frankly, it was only until Kavanaugh wrote the report that essentially demolished everything in Ruddy's book that the Vince Foster conspiracy theory kind of faded from. Well, this is the you news. know the Vince yeah. Foster well, that that story still
2: has the power to suck people I, down the rabbit hole as we I, have I clearly I appreciate now appreciate done. Your, uh, uh, your of Brett of Kavanaugh,
0: <laughs> yeah, but my point, right.
2: but but there's it's more. <laughs> Than, it's more it's than not just an di-
0: endorsement of Brett Kavanaugh's jurisprudence, by the way. I'm not, <laughs> uh, but Dana, just tick off a, a
2: few more of these examples, because, you know, it's not just uh, the Vince Voster story. It's Sarah Palin. It's it's birtherism. I mean, the li- you have a, a list that's sort of endless that shows how this, uh, you know, kind of got into the political bloodstream, particularly on the right all those years ago. And it's just, you know, just taken off
1: yes, um and uh, i'll I'll go easier on uh, Brett Kavanaugh from now on, <laughs> although I will say, regardless of in- his intentions, yes, it did keep the thing going for a couple more years. Now you can say he put it to bed, but of course he didn't because Trump was still bringing it up twenty right. years later but anyway i will let we'll, we will let Brett <laughs> Kavanaugh rest with uh, with Vince Foster. So, yes, I mean, the most famous uh, of the conspiracy theories was the death panels that uh, Sarah Palin uh, highlighted in 2010. Uh, and it, it was a very similar trajectory. It was, you know, it was, it was demonstrably false from the beginning. Nothing about it, no death panels in Obamacare. But it kept getting repeated and it was similar proportion to people who believe that Vince Foster uh, may have been murdered. About a third of the country came to believe that there were indeed death panels that Obamacare was trying to kill off grandma. And that's because, you know, it started with uh, Sarah Palin and then some faux uh, think tank uh, on the right, but it was picked up and uh, echoed in various versions by Republican lawmakers, by Fox News, even John Boehner, then uh, the the top Republican uh, in the House, was giving credibility to this. Uh, So, you know, that's a key one. I think probably in retrospect, the most damaging of all was a subtler one. But uh, you know we, the, the Bush administration figures such as uh, Karl Rove and Dick Cheney seriously distorted and indeed lied about the case for war uh, in Iraq. Now we can say, well, the intelligence was was poor and it was. But the intelligence was unambiguous about Iraq on nuclear weapons, about uh, uh, Saddam Hussein having no tie uh, whatsoever to uh, the 9-11 attacks about the CIA's concerns that we would not be greeted as liberators. Uh, There was a concerted effort to state things publicly that were false over and over and over again. And we went to war uh, based on those falsehoods. So, you know, what starts with a relatively harmless thing with uh, Vince Foster's uh, murder, if we can call it that, the case for war, the death panels, Uh, And then you begin to see how something like the big lie can take hold. You've been told so many lies uh, so repeatedly over a long period of time. You just begin to be conditioned to accepting these sorts of things.
0: I should point out, by the way, I mean, you're absolutely right about the Bush administration's total hyping and falsifying of the intelligence, but that every Democrat in the Senate, who was thinking of running for president from hillary clinton to joe biden to john kerry all voted to authorize the uh, the invasion yeah of I had, michael
1: i was writing a, a lot of articles about you know that a lot of these claims bush was making were bs if i had a piece on the front page of the post saying for bush the facts are malleable they were furious carl <laughs> rove wanted me to be reassigned off the off the white house beat but i'll tell you after Colin Powell made that present presentation yeah. at the United Nations. I thought this is the right call. We've got to go to war. war. So I mean it, you know, it's uh, both things can be true at the same time. Exactly. So look, you know, I guess the
0: bottom line question, larger question to to wrap this up is what do we do about this? We have it seems to me as I said before, you need a vibrant two-party system for a democracy to function. And You know, you argue we have a Republican Party that, you know, doesn't deserve to be at the table in the political dialogue today. How do we deal with a party that represents, you know, close to half the country if we're taking the attitude, you know, you guys are so outside the bounds of respectable (laughs) dialogue, we can't deal with you?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think it's... Us taking an attitude is the Republicans are not participating uh, in the democratic process are, are actually subverting it, so you can't have that discussion over what would be an ideal uh, tax policy what do we do about it now that's why i was i was coming to skullduggery i was hoping you guys were going <laughs> to have the answers it's to the this. Lo- it's the last
0: place you'll find answers we you just know, have look questions, there are any there right? are any
1: any number of fixes that we could do if we had to participating healthy political parties that could repair the damage done to our system but i don't think there's any point in in going into what uh, you know electoral Uh, Reforms can be done, you uh, you know, good luck. I'm glad they're doing the Electoral Count Act. But that's, you know, one minor fix for what happened the last time. Look, in the long term, I'm optimistic that this will work out because uh, of the demographic argument. I mean, this will be resolved even if not one more person uh, immigrates into the United States. This will become a white minority country. We will become a multicultural nation uh, more so than we are today. And I think that will change our politics fundamentally. The question is, what happens between now and then till we get to mid-century? Have we destroyed so much of our democracy that nothing is left? So and I don't have a good answer for that. Um, uh, you know, I believe that we need to keep bringing this to people's attention and keep fighting this uh, fight that uh, I've been doing, that I, I, I think you guys uh, have been doing. I mean, there is a, a possibility. You know, we began this by talking about Oklahoma City. You know, there is the possibility, God forbid, that all of this anger and violent rhetoric on the right leads to something catastrophic like that or worse than that. That could cause us to recoil and think, rethink the direction we're on, but nothing so far has caused us to recoil uh, and rethink, and I just shudder to think what that thing would need to be to get us back. Do you see, is there anyone that you see
2: within the, today's Republican party who could lead some kind of sort of reformation? Anything that gives you hope that, that the change can come from within?
1: Well, um, I mean, Liz Cheney's got one more week uh, before, or so, before she's <laughs> defeated. Or is that today? I've I've lost track. Uh, On the fifteenth, I think it's uh, right. Well, yeah, she's it's the got 15th. another week of uh, not, you know, not being booted out. Yeah, there are many, many brave people. Cheney now, both Cheneys, Who would have thunk I'd be uh, praising mm-hmm. Dick Cheney? <laughs> you know, George W. Bush. Uh, Mitt Romney, the late Jeff Flake, um, he's still alive, just not uh, in government. The, the problem is they are not there completely on the outs uh, of their party. Uh, there are a lot of brave people who have, have has cost them their careers and uh, their livelihoods in some cases to take this brave stand. But I see I, maybe you guys will see otherwise, and I hope you do. But I just don't see any uh, opening for change right now in this environment.
0: Well, on that despairing note, <laughs> um, uh, I want to thank you for joining us on Skullduggery. I can't believe we haven't had you on before. It's an um, outrage. It is. It is. And we deserve it. It's to a conspiracy. Be, uh, excoriated. Um, but look, the book is The Destructionists, the 25 year crack up of the Republican Party. And like everything Dana Milbank writes, it's a great read. So, listeners, read the book. And, Dana, thanks
1: again. It's been a great pleasure, thank you.